To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. We bring you news and analysis every day on the Sound On podcast. But now you can get the latest news on demand whenever you want it. Subscribe to Bloomberg News Now to get the latest headlines at the click of a button. Get informed on your schedule. You can listen and subscribe to Bloomberg News Now on the Bloomberg Business app, Bloomberg.com, plus Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Search Bloomberg News Now and subscribe today. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the Friday edition. Yeah, it is Friday of Bloomberg Sound On. Will it be another working weekend in Washington? It will be for some. And we're going to get to the speaker battle a little bit later on as we try to embrace the story of the day on this jobs day. The headline on the terminal says that all U.S. hiring surges, bolstering case for another Fed rate hike. Everybody thought this was bad news the minute it broke. Some still do, but not if you're Joe Biden, the president speaking earlier from the White House with a good story to tell. You heard me say it before. I'm going to keep saying it. My dad had an expression. He said, Joey, a job's about a lot more than a paycheck. It's about your dignity. It's about respect. It's about being able to look your kid in the eye and say, honey, it's going to be okay and mean it. Well, 336,000 more Americans, if they have children, can say that to their children and mean it. Yeah, 336,000, the most since the start of the year. It blew expectations, making us wonder if any of these forecasts even matter. And it's got a lot of folks worried, despite the relief we're seeing in the stock market, a lot of folks worried about interest rates and to what extent this might contribute to a recession. That's where we begin with Anna Wong, Bloomberg Economics Chief Economist with us at the table here. Anna, it's great to see you. You've been crunching numbers on a lot of stuff here, and I want to ask you as well, as we anticipate news today from the UAW, how that auto strike might play into this. But this clearly raised some eyebrows uh, when you see a number like this blowing away estimates to the extent that it did. Are you looking at it as good news or bad? Well, I think it's a very much a backward-looking report because uh, most of the upward positive re- re- uh, surprises we've seen today is driven by lesion hospitality. Mm-hmm. And a part of that is still the Beyonce effect because don't forget that Beyonce had, you know, I think 14 concerts in September and each of those <laughs> concerts has like 70,000 people yeah, in it. Yeah. So that's still, still a lot of, uh, there's that. And that effect will go away in next month's report because actually Beyonce's tour and ended uh, in September in, well, in North America. I hear more about Beyonce and Taylor <laughs> Swift than I have J.P. Powell recently. Right. And then on, on top of that, um, there's also manufacturing, mm-hmm. uh, which we saw an uptick in um, manufacturing. Uh, however, the UAW strikes would actually uh, likely push that manufacturing line number negative in the next, in the October report, if the UAW strike lasts until next Friday. Yep, okay. And it, it looks like it's going to last Looking until like it will. next Friday. I want to ask you about the numbers you crunched specifically on the strike. But when we do look at this Broadly, your point is this is the last hot report. We're going to see a very different number next month. And I wonder to what extent the child care cliff adds to that. Well, I think the, the child care cliff could affect the labor supply yeah. because you, we're heading into the fall season. This is where all the sicknesses, diseases also happen, flu. And, you know, uh, if, if, uh, if there's a child care cliff, you know, that, that thing is expiring. On top of that, there's this you know, influx of you know, flu season. Then we'll see women start dropping off the labor supply. I mean, mm-hmm. so far in the last couple of months, a lot of good news is coming from prime age participation, particularly from women. And so that could affect uh, how it looks. And of course, there's the UAW strikes impact. We're going to hear a little bit later on today from Sean Fain at the UAW. It is expected uh, that he will not announce a breakthrough. And to your point, this will last likely at least until next Friday. Bloomberg Economics, your analysis says this could mean as many as 700,000 lost jobs when you consider the ancillary effect 
of these strikes. What did you say? It was five jobs for every striking worker. Right, right. So the 700 figure is just assuming if it's a full-blown strike, so involving That's 150. That's a full shutdown. Yeah, Got full it. 150. But right now, only 25,000 UAW members are on strike. The spillover effect uh, potentially could affect 130,000 workers. So, you know, in 1998, when we had the GM strikes, 9,200 workers walked off. And the next month, a month later, the payroll report uh, reported a 150,000 impact from wow. that. So that, this is why we think that the manufacturing line in the next jobs report potentially would be negative. I saw some folks retweeting your take from a year ago on a potential recession. Where are you now? We are still thinking it's it's likely to be at the uh, before the end of this year. No, before the end of yes, this look, year. Yes, look, okay. we saw even despite the very huge headline number, unemployment rate is still at 3.8%. So you, all it takes is for unemployment rate to tick up to 4.0% 4, 4 mm -hmm. for the SOMS rule to be triggered. And it, that rule has been pretty accurate in identifying the start of recessions over the past You were 100% at one point. Where are you no, now? That's, no, that's the model. That's just one model. Okay. In terms of our uh, holistic judgment, we had been at about 70 to 80%. Are you there now? We are still at 75%. Wow. Reality check from Anna Wong. It's great to see you, Anna. Thank you and great work. Look for Anna Wong and her team on the terminal and at Bloomberg.com. They do an amazing job at Bloomberg Economics. Now, I think Jason Furman might make you feel a little bit better here. Check out the tweet from Jason Furman. We're going to go to Harvard Kennedy School to talk to him in a second here. First reaction to jobs numbers. Shock, he says. Second reaction. Nervousness. Further reflection. This could be quite good. Jason Furman, it's great to have you uh, back on Bloomberg. We need you now after what Anna Wong just told us. How are you interpreting this? You actually, of course, spent time chairing Council of Economic Advisors in the White House. They're telling a good story today, but the narrative is that at some point they're going to be telling a scary story about stubbornly high interest rates and a recession. What do you think? Yeah, look, I've been very nervous about the possibility of a soft landing, about inflation coming down. Um, I remain nervous. We are not there yet. We've only had a couple months of data, but today's data fell for me on the positive side of the ledger as I assess the economy. And what was particularly important to me was mm -hmm. the, um, you know, the wage numbers. The fact that they're slowing yeah. to me uh, makes it look like this is a sustainable uh, job market. Amazing. So if we can we can have a number like this, 336,000. We can blow the doors off with payrolls. But as long as wages uh, don't begin to spiral, you're comfortable with that. Yeah. And it's not just not beginning to spiral. They're really slowing. Um, and, you know, so the question is, you see a lot of jobs. You don't know whether that was an increase in the supply of people wanting to work or the increase mm -hmm. in the demand uh, for workers. It looks like um, this was an increase in supply. I teach introductory economics, and the way you can tell the difference between the two is what happens to the price. The price here is the wage. Mm -hmm. And so wage growth is about going at about a 3.5% annual rate. That is fully consistent with um, the Fed's inflation mandate. Now, I want to see more wage data. I want to see data from different sources. I want to see if this holds up. But um, this looks to me like we're seeing labor supply increase which is a, a wonderful yeah. thing to see because it isn't necessarily inflationary. Well, it is. I wonder how Jay Powell interprets this. You've got a market now thinking, gosh, maybe something does happen in November. Maybe this is not what we thought. I wonder where you see the Fed going and, and maybe the bond market doing its job for it already. Yeah, exactly. I think that last point is the most important one there, which is that the bar for hiking rates should be higher now. Um, long rates are more than 50 basis points you know, above where they were. That's what actually matters for the economy. That's doing a lot of work for them. And so I think it would take a, it should at least, and I think probably will, take a decent sized surprise um, to get them to hike again. I don't think today's report was enough because you have the wage number going the opposite direction. I don't think we're going to see a really blowout core CPI um, later this month, probably more like 0.2 than 0.3 and, and unlikely to be 0.4. Um, we then get the ECI at the end of the month, 
um, for employment costs, these data suggest that won't be very high either. So I just don't see hmm. what's going to get them to feel they need to lift off at the next meeting. Wow. This is refreshingly optimistic. But Jason Furman, let me ask you about some of the outside factors that people are worried about right now. Some of them are due to Washington, a potential government shutdown. We don't know what the heck's going to happen there. We're told that you know, lack of a speaker makes this potentially more likely. We've also got the childcare cliff that I asked Anna Wong about, the expiration of these pandemic era subsidies for childcare that could create some noise in the job market. And then we've got an historic auto workers strike, and we're going to find out a little bit later on where that's going. When you put all these together, where are you on the idea of a recession this year or next? Look, there's two threats to a soft landing. One is no landing where we continue to have inflation. That remains, mm -hmm. I think, the biggest threat to a soft landing is that we just don't land at all. Inflation stays above 3% and the Fed at some point needs to come back and hike more. There's then the other threat to a soft landing, of course, which is a hard landing that you crash into a recession. I certainly think a recession is possible. I'm certainly nervous. I'm basically always nervous about that possibility. But a lot of the individual items that people list to me are like looking for the keys under the lamppost just because that's where the light is. Many of these are hmm. relatively small. You can measure them. They're sort of a 10th or two on GDP. I don't think any of the specific things like the student loan prepayments, et cetera, um, is nearly enough don't. Uh, for a recession. We're looking for the keys. But, but, under but what the is enough for a recession is something that we don't see. I mean, recessions usually come from the place you're not looking. And I don't quite know which place that I'm not looking right now that I should be. Yeah, well, of course, this is the question that so many folks are asking. You know what it's like to be inside the White House. We'll talk later today with Jared Bernstein, who has your old job on the Council of Economic Advisors. If you're advising Joe Biden right now, he, he delivered a very optimistic speech this morning. He said, this is Bidenomics at work. This is not by accident. Does that remain the refrain if we start going into a year in which a real downturn is possible and people are paying higher rates than they have in some cases in their lives. Yeah, I don't I don't have message advice um, for the White House. And, and broadly, I don't know how much the message matters. If inflation no. continues to come down and wages are outpricing prices, people will feel better. The economy goes into recession, people will feel worse. And there's not a whole lot the president can say. Um, that changes those those underlying facts. What I do think is quite important, though, is you know, is is, is that things are volatile. Um, don't expect three hundred and thirty six thousand jobs a month for the rest of time. In fact, if we were creating a hundred thousand jobs a month for the rest of time, that would be a perfectly wonderful pace of job creation. So I think there does need to be some preparing people that there's inevitably ups and downs. You know, to that point, lastly, uh, Jason Furman, are we out of the business of being able to forecast here? I, I can't really remember the last time they nailed it. And there's still so much noise around here that you get a number like this and you wonder if our slide rulers are still working. Yeah, I mean, what's interesting to me is in the era of big data, we're not any better at doing this than um, we used to be. And, you know, but it's a hard thing. There's about 150 million jobs in our country. You're trying to guess this month it's 150 million, this month it's 150.2 million. Um, tiny, tiny errors in the level become huge errors in the change. And the change is, of course, what everyone is looking at. Great to see you, Jason. Don't be a stranger. Jason Furman back on Bloomberg, of course, professor of the practice of economic policy at Harvard Kennedy School, Department of Economics at Harvard University. And yes, he did chair the Council of Economic Advisors in the Obama White House. We assemble our panel for a quick swing at Jobs Day here. Glad to say Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are both with us, Bloomberg Politics contributors. Jeannie, uh, Joe Biden woke up on the, the right side of the bed today. He liked what he heard. He delivered the message. How long can he continue to do so? You know, he has to continue to give the message, but he also has to be cognizant that people are not feeling positive about the economy. You look at the latest Gallup numbers, his approval rating on the economy. It's not where he needs it to be. So I was surprised he is still touting Bidenomics. I think he needs huh. to talk about the fact he understands why these good numbers are not resonating with people. And that has everything to do with inflation, interest rates and the like. We didn't hear that message today, and that is worrisome to me. Hmm. 
Joe Biden says uh, this jobs report is no accident, Rick. It's Bidenomics in action. Would a recession also not be by accident? Yeah, I think that uh, he, he's going to own this economy. He does already. I mean, his numbers on the economy are just horrific in the you know middle to low 30s. Um, he's got to do something to get him up. I, I'm not sure feeling your pain, as Jeannie suggests, mm -hmm. is going to get him anywhere with the American public. Uh, they want to see action. Uh, and if this is good news today, if the Fed increases... Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie is based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast, In Trust, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Rates as a result of it, uh, you know, that backfires on him. So he's got to be very cautious as how he sticks his neck out on this economy. We're going to cover a lot with Rick and Jeannie today. It's not just jobs today. It's also the fight for the speaker's gavel in the House. And now talk of a meeting next month between Presidents Biden and Xi. It's all coming up this hour on the fastest show in politics. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington. This is Bloomberg. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. So the revolution will not be televised? I thought we had a headline here. I was looking forward to this debate. Now apparently canceled. The speaker's debate, not the one behind closed doors, the one that was supposed to go on Fox News. We woke up to the headline today. Brett Baer is coming down. We're going to have a big old debate between Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. CNN now reporting it's off. Scalise first said he would not participate. Now uh, we understand Scalise and Jordan talked this according to CNN and agreed that it would not be wise. Well, I guess they'll do that behind closed doors, and we still don't know exactly when the public election will take place in the House chamber, because I guess they're going to do a vote first behind closed doors. It's getting a little bit difficult to tell how this is all going to go down next week. But not a lot of people seem to think there's going to be a new speaker in place by next Wednesday. Again, Steve Scalise, Jim Jordan, we're waiting on Kevin Hearn, who says he's thinking about it. And before we bring in Rick and Jeannie, I'm really taken today uh, by comments from Liz Cheney. You remember Liz Cheney, who was thrown out of the Republican conference in the House. She's been talking about Jim Jordan, someone she knew well and worked with. This takes a minute. Listen to her in an address yesterday when she decided to weigh in, remembering that Donald Trump has endorsed Jim Jordan. You knew Liz Cheney wasn't going to go there. Jim Jordan knew more about what Donald Trump had planned for January 6th than any other member of the House of Representatives. Jim Jordan was involved, was part of the conspiracy in which Donald Trump was engaged as he attempted to overturn the election. She goes on to talk about uh, the role that he played that day in helping Donald Trump try to reach his goals. That may or not factor into this decision, but it's something worth hearing. As we reassemble our panel, Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano, of course, with us here on a Friday, Bloomberg Politics contributors. I'll start with you here, Rick. Uh, I know Liz Cheney's words don't mean a lot to the Republican caucus in the House, at least at this point. Maybe it does to some of them, uh, but she was unceremoniously stripped of her leadership position, and of course, uh, lost a primary election. 
So I guess I'll advance to what we now know, and that is discord, an on-again, off-again debate. This is not a good look for the Republican House. How's it going to go next week? Yeah, look, I thought your introduction was spot on. Uh, Joe, we we may not know until Thursday what the caucus is even willing to endorse. Remember, the process is uh, these uh, these candidates are supposed to basically make a presentation on Tuesday, which is why this thing on Monday got canceled. It was supposed to be, you know, Brett Bear interview with the candidates. And Jim Jordan said and Scalise agreed uh, that uh, it was inappropriate to have that public debate uh, prior to actually putting themselves in front of their caucus. And um, and I think that was a very wise decision. Um, so anyway, uh, uh, everybody I've talked to thinks it will take multiple ballots within the caucus to come up with a caucus recommendation. And that's just a that's just to put a name into nomination from the Republican caucus. Remember, then anybody can make nominations from the floor, which happened repeatedly during the 15 yes, right. rounds of voting, um, you know, when when uh, Kevin McCarthy was elected. So. Uh, this this is going to be a process that we'll be talking about throughout the week. Uh, you got to kind of hope uh, that 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 by Thursday close of business and that's you know midnight by these standards um, that they come up with a speaker of the house. But uh, it's going to be a painful and ugly process. It's been a painful and ugly process, and 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 there's no indication that at this stage anybody's got enough momentum to to really even come close to winning on on an early ballot. Mm-hmm. We were talking this time yesterday about the possibility of Donald Trump coming to town. Reports said that he was considering coming here to address uh, Republican members on this very issue. Some suggested he might even want to be temporary speaker himself. And based on John Carl's reporting today, that was not that far-fetched. But let's deal with reality, whether he's actually going to arrive in town because he decided to endorse Jim Jordan. And there's a thought that that was his decision. Instead of coming here to get involved, you kick out an endorsement. We asked Byron Donalds about this last night, Trump ally, Congressman, a Republican from Florida. Here's what he said. Um, it's possible. I, I did speak with him this morning. It came up, but nothing was conclusive. It's possible he could come up here on Tuesday. Look, I think, first of all, Donald Trump is way ahead in our primary process to be the Republican nominee, depending on the state, 50 points ahead. But his smallest lead in any of these polls is 20 points. Uh, He's focused on becoming our nominee to become the next president. All right. So we're thinking maybe not so much after talking to Byron Donalds. Jeannie, does the Jim Jordan endorsement, though, make a difference? It probably will with some members of this Republican caucus. I mean, he is the leader of the Republican Party. He has endorsed Jim Jordan. But let's just go back for a minute to what Liz Cheney was saying. And it's so important, the clip you played. Hmm. Days after the January 6th insurrection in one of his last acts as president, Donald Trump took Jim Jordan into a closed room and awarded him the Medal of Freedom. After he, as Cheney noted, knew more about what was happening on January 6th than anyone else, he receives the nation's highest civilian honor from this president who was under an impeachment inquiry at the time for his acts and is now indicted for those same acts. That is who the Republicans are seriously considering turning over the second in line to the presidency and the leader of their party in the House of Representatives, number one. Mm. Number two, what world are we living in that Donald Trump, 96 indictments, leading candidate for the Republican Party, has now thought seriously, as have our members of Congress, that he may also add to his list of things to do, Speaker of the House. It was apparently (laughs) campaign insiders who decided we better walk that back because we have jobs trying to get this guy elected president. I mean, this is chaotic and insanity to a level you cannot wrap your head around. All of these things make people say, good gosh, let me wake up and this all be over with because it is (laughs) insane. And by the way, top it off, we're facing another CR. They will not be able to get those appropriations bills done. So another CR to take us through Christmas. Two, two questions, Rick. Number one, smart move to cancel the debate. I mean, this televised on Fox could have been quite the spectacle. And two, is anyone in the conference, in the Republican conference, listening to Liz Cheney? Um, uh, last first, uh, Liz Cheney still has quite a bit of influence with, you know, the more mainstream um, uh, Republicans yep. in the caucus. And, and 
and yeah, Jim Jordan was sort of a co-conspirator with a lot of the uh, uh, Freedom Caucus members to try and create disarray on the floor uh, during the uh, electoral vote count. Uh, absolutely, he's he, and, and he should pay a price for that. Um, um, and and so that's all part of this crazy mix that makes it very difficult to actually see a pathway to any of these people actually getting, um, uh, you know, uh, ultimately elected uh, in in the speaker's job. I mean, um, uh, I think this, and I think we'll continuously hear all through the weekend and on Sunday shows, um, uh, other Republicans from both in the chamber and outside, alumni and others, hmm. uh, weighing in on this, because I think people see this as a tipping point for the caucus and, and 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 it's not totally clear right now that either candidate really takes you in a different direction, frankly, than Kevin McCarthy was headed in to begin with. I mean, like, what's well, Jim Jordan going to get from that caucus that, that Kevin McCarthy yeah. didn't get? Um, so it's a it's 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 a pretty uh, uh, crazy time, I think. <laughs> Jeannie very accurately described uh, just how wacky this all is, and 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 all of it inures to the benefit of Democrats. There is no upside to any of this conversation wow. going on for Republican prospects in the 2004 election. There you have it from one of the most important Republican strategists in the country. Rick Davis, Judy Shanzano, great conversation. If you're not with us on YouTube, you will not be as jealous as the rest of us of Rick's office or his dog. Search Bloomberg Global News. We've got the cameras lit and we'll meet you in here with more ahead on this idea. Yeah, see, this idea of Joe Biden meeting with President Xi. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch us live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, and the Bloomberg Business app. Or listen on demand wherever you get your podcasts. So a lot of talk today about the big meeting finally happening. It's been since last November, since the Chinese spy balloon, that Joe Biden and President Xi have had a meeting, and it's apparently... Very likely that this is going to happen next month here in the U.S. Next month is when the Asia-Pacific Economic Cooperation APAC Summit takes place. And that's apparently where this would come together. Uh, Beijing has not signed off on this yet, but reports, including what we're hearing at Bloomberg here, suggest that it is likely. APAC, by the way. November 11th to 17th. When the government's going to shut down? We'll see about that. Let's assemble our panel once again. Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano are back in Bloomberg Politics contributors. Uh, Jeannie, the president was asked about this today. He didn't have much to say about it. This is when he addressed reporters about the jobs report. Give this a listen. What are the prospects for a meeting between you and President Xi of China in San Francisco next month? There has been no such meeting set up, but it is a possibility. Okay, that was literally his entire answer, Jeannie. Should this meeting, will this meeting happen? You know, I think I, we hope it does. And we know that both sides are working on it, but there have been no firm commitments. One of the things we hear is that Xi Jinping is concerned, obviously, about the domestic situation in China, also about any profit provocations that the U.S. engages in, which embarrass him prior to or during the meeting. And so whether mm. the U.S. is willing to make commitments to ensure this meeting happens is unclear. But what does seem clear is that if the meeting takes takes place, a lot of it is going to be optics and not necessarily substantive. For Biden, it's going to be to a domestic audience looking at 2024. And the same thing for Xi Jinping, who's got to shore up his own domestic support and base, given all the challenges he faces over there. So a lot to be considered. And we'll have to wait and see. But as you mentioned, the timing also fascinating because it runs right up against another potential shutdown or a CR if the Congress can get there. That's the truth. Uh, China's foreign minister, Wang Yi, uh, Rick, said the U.S. should, quote, create more favorable conditions for a smooth APEC meeting. Uh, I'm guessing they would not include a government shutdown. If this is for a domestic audience, how does that look when Joe Biden gets on an airplane, flies to San Francisco when they're hashing out details of a budget here in the U.S.? 
I don't know. There's there's an argument to be made that uh, if you could shut the government down for a week while a decent meeting takes place, it might be the best thing that ever happened for <laughs> diplomatic relations between China and the U.S. Um, but I'm not sure we you know have much to gain from this meeting. Um, China's kind of on on its back when it comes to uh, its own uh, economic situation, but also uh, diplomatic political. Uh, you know, their foreign minister disappeared for a little while and then find out that he's been resigned and replaced by his predecessor. Uh, the rocket commander of China and the military disappeared one day and then they replaced the defense minister for corruption. I mean, like this, their, their cabinet is a mess. I mean, honestly, you know, if we knew more about what was going on there, we might think we might have it better off. So uh, the reality is uh, Jeannie's right. We we ought to have a better dialogue going on with the Chinese, but we we should not romanticize the notion that somehow we have too much in common with them these days. We are in a full up Cold War II, and this will be one of the very first meetings since we've really entered that phase. So breaking the ice here, maybe, Jeannie. I, I took a look. It was back in June, June 21st, the dictator remark. Remember, this was at a fundraiser. Joe Biden referred to President Xi as a dictator. How does this meeting go when that's the baseline? Yeah, it, it sounds like it might be a little bit icy, but the reality is these two have known each other, as Joe Biden, you know, says on, an awful lot for a long time. They have met several times, you know, not necessarily as President Biden. He has met with him previously in his other positions. So they do know each other. And I think they're both seasoned enough to be able to do this. The reality, though, is let's not forget there's another summit that may happen before this one, if it does happen, and that would be Vladimir Putin taking a chance of flying out of Moscow and flying over to Beijing. And that is going to be another really important thing to watch, because is Joe Biden going to meet with Xi Jinping if he does meet with Putin in Beijing, depending on how that turns out, given everything going on here and in Eastern Europe and Western Europe as it pertains to Ukraine, amongst many other things. So it's going to be fascinating because if these both go forward, these summits are almost back to back. And again, we don't know yet wow. if they'll happen, but they are two that would have, and you know, the first one would have a key impact on the second one if it occurs. Yeah. Very interesting. To your point, though, Rick, these these may not be the most productive of meetings. I guess you have to start somewhere. But I wonder what the takeaway would be. You see Joe Biden meets with President Xi and then a week later, a cabinet official goes to Taiwan and the whole thing's off again. Yeah, look, I mean, you know, we're we're in a tough place uh, with our relationship there. And 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 and, and frankly, um, you know, we're doing what we need to do to shore up our defenses in the Pacific. Uh, to rearm and, uh, uh, you know, uh, prepare Taiwan for, uh, you know, a, uh, a potential attack by the, the Chinese, because that's what the Chinese have been signaling. I mean, Xi Jinping got elected his third term on the platform that he would reunite by force or by politics Taiwan, uh, you know, uh, and so give me that term of office, give me that historic extra term, and I will do this. So, uh, you know, you can't have a conversation with Xi Jinping right now unless you start it with Taiwan. And that's probably the last thing that uh, that that he wants to talk to the U.S. about. Well, lastly, then, Jeannie, in, in our remaining moment here, if this is to a domestic audience, is this going to be performative for Joe Biden? Does he go there and, you know, wag his finger in President Xi's face to get some some boost in the polls? Yeah, he, it is going to be performative. How he handles it, I'm not sure, but it will be. Osage County, Oklahoma, is getting a lot of attention right now. It's the setting of Martin Scorsese's latest film, Killers of the Flower Moon. The movie's based on a book about the 1920s Osage murders, when white men poured into Osage County and killed Osage people for their oil wealth. I'm Rachel Adams Heard, the host of In Trust, a podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartMedia. For over a year, I was reporting a different story, about other ways white people got Osage land and wealth, and how a prominent ranching family in Osage County became one of the biggest landowners here. Their ranching empire was built on land that at the turn of the century was all owned by the Osage Nation. So how'd they get it? Listen to the award-winning podcast In Trust on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
performative. I have one thing or two things we could ask of the China in terms of commitments. Stop hacking, stop mm. stealing IP. That would be a good start, <laughs> let alone the issues involving Taiwan. So there's a lot to talk about that he could wag his finger about. That's a good start. I hope the White House is listening to Jeannie Shanzano. And stop messing with the iPhone so we don't have to keep talking about this. I'm Joe Matthew in Washington with Rick Davis and Jeannie Shanzano. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Nice to see you. Happy Friday. Indeed. Uh, I think it's been a seven-day week already. <laughs> and uh, we'll see what happens this weekend, of course. Yeah. But a lot to talk about on this jobs day, which actually is somewhat refreshing to have a different thing to discuss yeah. than the speaker's race. But we're about to <laughs> we're about to dig into that heavily. Um, before we do, though, the president talked about it today. We had Jason Furman on last hour, and it's mm -hmm. like this good news, bad news situation. I'm not sure where we are. You saw Jason Furman tweeting earlier. It's his reaction started with shock, then nervousness, then hey, this actually isn't that bad. Yeah. And the stock market seems to be doing the same thing. Yeah, I mean. Okay, two things really we're looking at in jobs reports mm -hmm. now, right? The headline figure, 336,000. doors off. It's just kind of insane, yeah. honestly. It blew past every single estimate out there, and that's something President Biden is flexing, obviously. That is a number that works for him. But then the wage growth was actually light. Mm -hmm. Just two-tenths of a percent gain in wages hourly, month on month, yep. which is maybe not as inflationary, right? So it is kind of like this win-win. And while the market freaked out at that headline payrolls number initially, I think maybe it realized that the inflation read wasn't so bad. So maybe don't freak out as much. That's That was Jason Furman's uh, think piece earlier. We can keep growing like crazy as long as wages don't spiral. Yeah. Maybe the markets will feel that way. But Anna Wong also told us next month, they're not going to look like this. We're about to go off a cliff when it comes to jobs. So you know, we're waiting for an update from the UAW, and that's yep. going to play into this, too. Absolutely. Bloomberg Economics, Anna Wong and the team, says if all 150,000 UAW workers eventually go on strike, mm -hmm. it could mean the loss of 760,000 jobs amazing. because yep. of all those ripple secondary effects. Imagine five jobs lost for every striking worker. That's what that uh, cooks down to. And it really makes us realize and remember how much ancillary business is supported by 100%. all of these folks who are potentially going to be on a picket line. Uh, I mentioned the president uh, talked about this earlier before we bring in Lisa Camuso Miller. Uh, he was taking a, a victory lap. He talked about the, you know, he always the line his dad told him about the dignity of having a job. Yep. And then he got to the numbers. The unemployment rate has stayed below 4% for 20 months in a row, the longest stretch in 50 years. We've achieved a 70-year low in unemployment rate for women, record lows in unemployment for African-Americans and Hispanic workers, and people with disabilities, folks who have been left behind in previous recoveries and left behind for too long. We have the highest share of working-age Americans in the workforce in 20 years. So this is a pretty good story for him to tell. He says, by the way, that's no accident. That's Bidenomics. Right. But if the recession hits, that also wouldn't be an accident, right? Timing is everything, Joe. Well, yeah. Furman said that, too. They can't thumb the scale at the White House. Yeah. There's no advice for the president here. You're either going to have a bad bit of timing, or maybe, as Anna Wong says, that recession happens at the end of this year, and he's in the clear for a campaign cycle. For 2024. All of these are possible. Perhaps. And, of course, he's also speaking at the White House at a time where there's other tumultuous things happening in the economy. The strike, obviously. He's very yep. supportive of the UAW and what yep. they are doing. But also... Could be looking down the barrel of another government shutdown potentially well, come November right. 17th with the discord you're seeing in the House of Representatives at the moment. Yeah, so I was just talking to Rick and Jeannie about this. November 17th, you just said the date. Yeah. That's when he might be in San Francisco meeting with President Xi at the APEC yes. conference. So are you telling me he's going to get on a plane, leave Washington in the middle of that to go meet with a foreign leader? They're going to have to maybe think about well, that. Well, remember when, the time when comes. he got on a plane in the middle of the debt ceiling fight? Absolutely to true. To go abroad, and so we I asked guess that that's question. A yes. <laughs> <laughs> it depends, I guess, how important this meeting is. You leave for a day, it shouldn't be that big of a thing. But it's just all, it's all perception. Yes. So the president was asked about the speaker's battle. You're not going to walk into a room full of reporters at the White House and not have this come up. I will tell you, Kaylee, again, he seemed exhausted today. I know that, that this is something that some folks are concerned about. Mm -hmm. 
He paused uh, a number of times, lengthy pauses, thinking. She even said at one point, I need to get the words right. But he did speak to the speaker. <laughs> um, look, whomever the House speakers I'm going to try to work with, they control half the, half the Congress. And I'm going to try to work with them. There's some people I imagine it's going to be easier to work with than others. But uh, mm -hmm. whoever the speaker is, I'll try to work with. I think he's talking about Jim Jordan there. Maybe not as easy Perhaps. as Steve Scalise. Perhaps. I don't know. I can't wait to hear what Lisa Camosa Miller has in mind. Think of how much has changed <laughs> since we talked to Lisa like five minutes ago. We have an endorsement, Lisa. Welcome back from Donald Trump. Hi, we have an on-again, now off-again televised debate apparently being scheduled between Scalise and Jordan. By the way, Trump is backing Jim Jordan and might even show up on Tuesday, mm -hmm. according to our conversation yesterday with Byron Donalds. Um, is this getting more chaotic with time? You know, I think there's two tracks in the speaker's race. And, and this comes from conversations I've had over the course of the last 24 hours. The Jim Jordan factor is definitely interesting. He's never been in leadership um, in, in terms of like being the speaker's suite or any of those areas. So folks are curious about him. Uh, but also still very wary, especially because of his close ties to to Trump. But he's having conversations with all of the right organizations in terms of like Main Street and uh, Freedom Caucus and all of the other factors inside of the House. The other factor here, and it does feel like Jordan right now, momentum is on his side, no question. But the fact that Steve Scalise and Tom Emmer have teamed up together on a ticket, the two of them are so well-liked. Right now, if I had to guess... 218 votes is definitely more favorable in that camp than it is Jim Jordan. Now, you know, and I know that five minutes from now, that could all change. But that is what we're seeing and what we're hearing right now from Capitol Hill. Well, of course, there's another name in the mix as well who hasn't decided either way whether or not to formally toss his hat in the ring, yeah. Lisa, and that's Congressman Kevin Hearn. He actually posted on X earlier today. He said he still hasn't made a decision on his candidacy for speaker, but he went on to say he's not going to participate in the debate. I think this is one of the contributing factors to that now kind of imploding as an idea. He went on, though, to say we need to make this decision as a conference, not on TV. The Republican conference needs a family discussion. Lisa, it's really hard to see the Republican conference right now as a family. I mean, I don't know about your family, but dysfunction definitely is part of the family situation <laughs> in the world. But this family needs like therapy and they need a lot of work. <laughs> um, I, I will say this, though. Um, I think Hearn is not a real candidate. I think McHenry is definitely not a real candidate. Uh, I think that the two candidates that are uh, that are emerging right now and for sure will be the two are Jordan and Scalise. And the conference hates the idea about a televised debate because it makes this more of a circus. This already is super embarrassing. It's not terribly helpful. Last time we did this was in 1910. Guess what? In 1912, the Republicans lost control of the House. If we keep it up and we keep looking like petulant toddlers, the voters are going to respond. So we have work to do. And by the way, November 17th is like a minute away. We have got to fund the right. government. This stopped all momentum. After the CR passed, there were bills that were in the process that were going to get passed, uh, appropriations bills for the first time ever. We were making strides. The conference was working together well. And then all of a sudden, this motion to vacate happens. Kevin McCarthy is out and we are tossed into chaos again. So this alone has stopped that momentum. And now we look at another shutdown, and this one, I think, could be worse. We should mention the headlines that you just uh, put in front of me here, Kaylee, while we're talking to Lisa Miller. The UAW, it looks like, uh, is going to be at least maintaining, if not escalating, strikes against GM, but not yeah. Ford and Stellantis. We're still waiting to hear from Sean Fain on this. Yeah, this is according to people familiar with the matter who have spoken to our colleagues here at Bloomberg. But remember, Ford and Stellantis each already have been spared That's one correct. time. GM has not been spared no, any yeah. escalation thus far. No mercy for Mary Barra. None at all. And remember, GM said earlier this week, this strike has already cost them $200 million. Oh they were God. securing a $6 billion line of credit to help protect themselves. Incredible. And it looks like they may get hit a little harder. According to our reporting, UAW is considering a plan to strike the GM SUV plant 
in Arlington, Texas. So, of course, we'll continue wow. to follow this as Sean Fain starts his live stream. There we go to Texas potentially next. Uh, I appreciate that, Kaylee. We'll let you know. Keep your eyes on the terminal. The headlines will let you know what's going on. Uh, with this story, obviously, as we spent some time with Lisa Camuso Miller, you mentioned f the family. Mm -hmm. I thought there were five families. Wasn't that the whole <laughs> narrative of the Republican led house? It's who can navigate the five families, Lisa Camuso Miller. You're from New Jersey. You get this. I do. I do. I do. <laughs> but also, this is this is more than five families. It's it's hard to keep track. Um, what's mm -hmm. interesting to me is there's been a lot of reporting about uh, the various blocks, right? So uh, there was discussion yesterday in the media about how uh, Congressman Jordan had gone to the Texas delegation and had gone to the Main Street coalition and had gone to, a, and Scalise obviously is doing the same. He's on the phone. He's working the phones. Nobody knows how to do that better than him and Tom Emmer. Hmm. Um, but what is different now is that those blocks used to vote all together. They used to be like they would move as one. And that is no longer the case. So going to the Texas delegation is very smart because it's a huge chunk of members and a huge block. But they'll be split. They'll be 50-50. Mm -hmm. I mean, half will go to Scalise and half will go to Jordan. It will not be a full block of voters. And that's what's different here is that this is not the same race and it's not the same fight. But I think the one thing that makes the conference look smart and strategic is that they not go to the floor before they know mm -hmm. who has 218 votes because we cannot have another Fox. repeat <laughs> of what we saw in the beginning of the year. We have to get back to work. Yeah, I don't think anyone is eager to go through another 15 rounds and four days of trying to get someone the gavel. But it raises the question, Lisa, of just how long it's going to take before this gets to the floor. I mean, we could be looking at weeks. And to your point, we are up against a deadline. That November 17th deadline is like basically just a second away. Can you also just kind of talk about the influence of former President Trump here? As Joe mentioned, Jim Jordan endorsed by the former president last night. Trump was teasing the idea of coming to Capitol Hill next week. We'll see if it happens. But like how much influence does he have on the conference at this point? This is a bit of a gamble, I think, for the president and for the former president. And here's why. I know that those eight that all voted together against Kevin McCarthy um, are with likely with Trump. But there is a whole section of moderates that are not. And can you imagine how embarrassing this would be if this was another loss for the president? Uh, this, mm. to me, is the narrative that so many of those other candidates that have been in those candidate forums, the debates, uh, have been pointing to, is that Donald Trump has a record of losing. And there's one thing that Republicans really want in 24, and that's to win. Huh. So huh. this alone could very well be a litmus test for how next November could look. I know we're seeing numbers, and I know Trump is the front runner right now, but this is yet another it's yet another cut in the in the um the erosion of his candidacy and and mm. and it adds to the narrative that he's a loser. Um, so that alone is interesting to me. I do think it helps though, because I think that because he's the front runner, he's raising the most money. People see that too as an advantage. So right now, Kaylee, I'm not sure all the way if it's going to be helpful or hurtful, but I do think that when that was announced yesterday that he was with, with Jordan, that that really was, that really set his momentum on course for success um, because it's good positive news inside the conference that the president's going to be, the former president's going to be with him if he's the speaker. Mm. But the other piece of this that doesn't ever get mentioned is that he's not terribly loyal. My Kevin, I mean, we remember how he talked about the former speaker, <laughs> right? <laughs> and he said nothing when the speaker was about to be voted out. He never spoke up. I mean, his loyalty is to himself and himself alone. And that, I think, is the thing that people inside the Republican conference see and they see as a liability. I think they want to be with people like Tom Emmer put every single one of those House Republicans in their seats. I mean, he understands the districts. He Nobody is a better collaborator. And no one delivered the the past. All the wins that we gave to Kevin McCarthy as speaker came because Tom mm -hmm. Emmer knows how to build and rally around an issue. And that wow. is that's politics tactically that works well. 
How'd you like to have Lisa Camusa Miller call you a loser on Bloomberg? <laughs> That's got to be an experience. Lisa, great to see you. Thank you. The former communications director for the RNC, bringing experience and wisdom as always. You're listening to the Bloomberg Sound On Podcast. Catch the program live weekdays at 1 Eastern on Bloomberg Radio, the TuneIn app, Bloomberg.com, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can also listen live on Amazon Alexa from our flagship New York station. Just say, Alexa, play Bloomberg 1130. Today's the day. Fat Bear Week. One of the, the casualties that could have come from a government shutdown, which didn't end up happening last weekend, as many thought, including us. <laughs> One of the casualties would have been Fat Bear Week. Would have been a travesty. Because, you know, they would have closed the parks, and it's the National Park Service, I believe, that runs this Fat Bear Week competition. Uh, it's basically like a reality show. <laughs> For fat bears. For bears. <laughs> Did you know that's a big bear right there? Mm-hmm. Adult male bears average between seven and 900 pounds middle of the summer by this time they can top 1,200 pounds as they prepare for hibernation. And this is an online contest right. to, for somebody pick your favorite fat bear. Yes. 747, I think, was the name of the bear that won last year. It was. He tipped the scales at an estimated 1,400 pounds. Wow, we. I encourage all of our listeners to go Google who is the fattest bear. Yeah. And you will see some pictures These photos of some are very, truly impressive. very fat bears. Um, 435 Holly, another one, large adult female bear. The Park Service website compares to a lightly toasted marshmallow in both color <laughs> and shape. I'd like to get a hug from a fat bear. 436 Holly this time of year is very fat with grizzled blonde fur. Mm. It's kind of like a, you know, watching the Kennel Club dog show. Just really fat bears running around. Did you pick one? <laughs> Producer Brendan writes in, if I get hugged by a fat bear, it might be my last hug. <laughs> that's because he was watching Cocaine Bear. That's a different, that's a totally different bear. Uh, Matt Miller was pretty up on Fat Bear Week as well. Are you in touch with him on this? Because I think he listens to the show. I think he's listening right now. It's probably only a matter of seconds before he writes in. He probably already voted for the fattest bear. <laughs> Four, I'm going to go do that now. 480 Otis apparently running hot here in the competition as he pursues one last tasty morsel before hibernation. All right, we're going to go away now. We're going to go away. I'm Joe Matthew with Kaylee Lines. I'll meet you on Balance of Power. Indeed. Thanks for listening to the Sound On Podcast. Make sure to subscribe if you haven't already at Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. And you can find us live every weekday from Washington, D.C. at 1 p.m. Eastern Time at Bloomberg.com. To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.